There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Director Barry Jenkins delivers the new TV series Underground Railroad on Prime Video this Friday. I spoke with Jenkins between his two masterpieces, Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. After Moonlight, it's like, what's he going to mm-hmm. do next? Mm-hmm. How's he going to reach that high bar? But you did. You mm-hmm. did. So Thanks, congrats man. right off the bat. Thank you. Um, everyone's looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. Mm-hmm. Why was this one? you got to be selective what that next one's going to mm-hmm. be coming off Best Picture. Why uh, this? No, I, I didn't. I didn't think of it that way. That you had to be yeah. selective coming off of a uh, best picture. You know, I wrote this script at the same time that I wrote the script for Moonlight in the summer of 2013. I didn't have the rights. I wrote the script before having the rights to the book, um, and then over the process of making Moonlight, got the rights from the estate, and it was actually really nice when all the Oscars and awards uh, season stuff started to really just know what the next piece was was going to be, even before all the madness. Um, at the Oscars, and then when the matters at the Oscars did happen, again, it was even nicer to know that there wasn't going to be this pressure or expectation. I already knew what I was going to do next, and, um, and it was this film, which I consider a companion piece to the previous film. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like when directors do that, I mean, a little B-side, if you will. Yeah, exactly. But, um, when did you encounter the Baldwin book? Because I'm pretty sure this is the first narrative adaptation mm-hmm. of the book. We saw, you know, the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, was, to me, is an all-time. Mm-hmm. But for this, you know, what, when did you actually read the book? Uh, I read the book for the first time in... 2008, 2009, somewhere around there, a friend sent it to me and asked me if I had read it because everybody knew I was a big fan of Baldwin's work, but I actually hadn't read this one. And I read it, and I was just really surprised at how romantic it was, how lush this sort of like love between these two characters are. They're essentially soulmates, but then still how uh, James Baldwin, through his cultural critique, his views on society, still managed to make this very, I think, persuasive argument about uh, the brokenness of the American justice system. Yeah, I like how it works on multiple levels because in the macro, you get you get the social commentary, you mm-hmm. get the mass incarceration mm-hmm. and the justice system that you're talking about, but it's not like overpowering you while you're watching it because you're so into these the human story. Here. Yeah. This is a great, great love story. My favorite scene on that front is when they're looking at the new apartment. That's my yeah. favorite. <laughs> that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. Explain shooting that scene and your idea of how your camera just is swooping around and mm-hmm. you almost start imagining the yeah. fridge and the table. And, exactly. You know, and the way I, yeah, the, the idea was you know, again, it's a very faithful adaptation. And so that scene is in the book somewhat. Um, but I was shocked that one, and as recently as 74, which is close enough or far enough away that Soho wasn't the Soho we know today. And that a guy who works a job as a short order cook could actually afford a loft in Soho. Uh, so I told my location scout, I need to see a place that's like this because I don't believe it, uh, that it ever existed. Um, and he found one. And, you know, the landlord was, you know, this Jewish guy who we modeled Dave Franco's character uh, off of. Um, and then the loft itself, as we were going around it, 
I just thought, this doesn't make any sense. You can't make this into a home. And then I, and then it clicked. It's like, oh, well, what's, what's like a testament to love and faith in love than someone promising you something that is impossible and you going, okay, I believe you. And so once we clicked on that, I rewrote the scene to reflect this thing where they're pretending to grab the fridge and all that stuff. And, uh, and Dave's character, uh, Dave Franco's character, Levy, the landlord, is in the book. But even then, it wasn't enough. I was trying to find some connective tissue between he and Fani, and this idea of mothers just came to me. And that was when we added the line where Fani's like, yo, Mr. White Man, why the hell are you giving me this loft? You know, you know, I've, we've been looking for all this time, and nobody's going to sell a loft out here to two Negroes, he says. And I thought, um, you know, everybody has a mother. And so the he line... Says, I'm just my mother's son, right? Yes, that's the only thing that makes a difference between us and them. And you think the us, is the us and them is black and white, but really it's people who've been loved, have been nurtured, and therefore they have a very open heart, and people who maybe haven't had that opportunity until they have a very closed heart. So one of those nice things that just happens between location scouting and working with actors. I think it's like the line of the movie. I mean, it's something all that. Plus, the, since she's an expected mother, too, I mean, it, it's just, it gives them the, the groundwork. For See? Yeah, uh, see? He's always uh, working. Um, <laughs> speaking of childbirth, my mm-hmm. favorite shot from a directing level mm-hmm. is, you know what I'm going to say, maybe mm-hmm. by a POV almost from a childbirth perspective. We yeah. shoot out of the water in the, in the bath right yeah. into uh, the arms there. Um, mm-hmm. How was that achieved? Um, it was like, you know, I used to go to SeaWorld as a kid and I always liked how the, the things came through the water. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the most ridiculous explanation for one of the coolest shots in a movie. No, I'm messing with you. <laughs> no, it was something else that happened in the process of location scouting and working on the script. I don't know why, but myself and the cinematographer were talking about this idea of how to end the film, because the language in the end of the book is very soft. It's not like concrete imagery at the end. And I don't know why, but I just saw, because this woman's carrying this child the entire film, just this, um, I wanted to, to be a part of the birth, you know, without all the, the messiness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for so, saying so, that. Right? Yeah. So it's a very elevated kind of depiction um, and not not documentary kind of depiction of a of a birth, but because of all the things these characters are carrying over the course of the film, it felt like something that visually um, spectacular uh, was earned at that point. And yeah, it's something that you know I think for women who see the film uh, in particular, even though it's not a documentarian's uh, depiction of a childbirth, something about it really. Uh, really moves them and whose arms would you want to come into you know as your first breaths in this world uh, other than Regina King so. <laughs> right? I, I, I was like man I wanted her to be my mm-hmm. um, but I mean it's a lot of vis- dynamic visual language here mm-hmm. which I mean you're known for I mean you're a genius at it good fellas ask freeze frames early mm-hmm. on and hear mm-hmm. the characters uh, talking over it voice mm-hmm. over and I also love that shot when he's at the art sculpting thing and mm-hmm. you're sitting around with the smoke. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just great. But like even mm-hmm. in Moonlight, everything that's blue is signifying his you know sexual awakening. Like he's yeah. got the blue backpack when they're playing Smear the You Know What. Mm-hmm. He's got the blue hallways. He's got the book. Mm-hmm. And it's because the book is in Moonlight. Black boys look blue. blue. Right? Exactly. So take me into how, just your idea of like I'm gonna assign a symbolic color mm-hmm. to this. Uh, it's important because I think you know it's not literature. It's cinema. So I think the visuals are very uh, important. I think the sound is important too just as important um, and I think for me it's not worth telling these stories if we don't create an immersive experience uh, for the audience you know as, as they say walk a mile in the character's shoes you know I kind of want almost it's not virtual reality you're not putting on a headset but I do feel like the auditorium of uh, a cinema is like a virtual reality headset in a certain way you know the image is always in front of you and the sound is all around you and so I'm always trying to find ways to really do things um, with the form, with the actual aesthetics that heighten the experience um, of the characters. 
And I think some of the things with color that we did in Moonlight, we did it in a softer way um, in this film. Myself and the DP, the costume designer, and the production designer, we would all get together and just drink wine over the course of pre-pro and you know, pass this color around, pass this image around, and eventually you start to see um, these things sort of like uh, pop up in everybody's department. Um, and what's happening is we were all just getting inside this young woman's head and trying to use you know, everything at our disposal from the clothes to the lenses to the quality of the light to really reflect what it feels like to be her. Absolutely. All right, well, we're getting to go home. So final question, uh, but I have to say, I was I was there backstage covering the Oscars when mm-hmm. all that mess went down, and mm-hmm. I almost felt bad for you. It was like, every, you're like, can I talk about my movie? This is Everyone wants to talk about the gaff, but it was no, so I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to say nothing in the moment. Yeah, man. exactly. But I, now, I don't want to dive into that because mm-hmm. I'm already sick of the envelope stuff. But in terms of, um, now that you've had a little perspective from it, mm-hmm. um, you know, Damien gets director, you get mm-hmm. best picture, um, he just did first man, you're doing this. Like, mm-hmm. it's just watch, awesome watching you guys blossom, and I hate that people were trying to pit the movies against each other at the time. Mm-hmm. But now, do you see you guys as just like the next wave? I think we have like a new renaissance going on. Uh, I think uh, I think every year there's a new wave. <laughs> you know, you look at uh, last year with Greta uh, and Jordan. You know, this year I think Yorgos is going to get his proper due. Um, you know, and he has. I think he's been nominated two years in a row or something like that. So, you know, it all goes in cycles. The thing with Damien is we were both at Toronto, and the first thing I did at Toronto, which is where this film world premiered. I go into this this suite, and I'm sitting ready to do this interview, and I look at the monitor, who's doing the interview before me, and it's Damien. <laughs> and, um, and he came off from, from backstage, and we looked at each other, and we looked around because we knew that we, we went to give each other a hug, and everybody's phone was out taking all these photos. So, uh, But in a way, it's kind of lovely because you know, those films are very, very different, La La Land and Moonlight, and these films are different, First Man uh, and Beale Street, but I think we both go about it the same way. And I think it's really cool that, for whatever crazy reason, you know, uh, these two storytellers are somehow always linked. So Linked in history. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's a Beale Street. Thank everybody. you, bro. It's a great movie. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. <laughs>